Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. James Bond and the fictional British spies creator Ian Fleming have much to answer for on the cocktail front, whether that be the relative merits of the Vesper cocktail or the proper way to prepare a martini. But the cocktail world also owes much to Messrs Bond and Fleming, namely introducing most drinkers, and even those who haven't yet reached legal drinking age, to the two fundamental methods for preparing cocktails. We're talking, of course, about shaking and stirring. Today's show is dedicated to the latter, stirring. And while that might seem like something of a vague topic to spend the best part of an hour exploring, we're joined by an absolute expert in the field. Returning guest Sebastian Hamilton Mudge is a former bar owner and former global brand ambassador for Beef Eater and Plymouth Gin. Needless to say, the man's enjoyed and prepared more than his fair share of exceptional martinis in his time. Stirred, naturally. What's more, Sebastian is the co-founder of Candra, an educational online drinks resource and creative and consultancy agency. Perhaps what makes him most qualified for today's episode, however, and best place to walk us through the do's and don'ts of stirring cocktails, is his absolute dedication to proper dilution. And that's kind of what stirring's all about. It also encapsulates serving temperature, proper bar tools, and more science than you might previously have realized. Oh, and it's all right here on this week's technique-driven edition of the Cocktail College Podcast. He's back, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Sebastian Hamilton Mudge in the house, in the studio for the first time. Yeah, it's amazing. In, Um, In person. In person. First time we're meeting in person. Is it? I think so. No. Is it? Possibly. Probably. I bet we've been in many of the same room. We, yeah, and we've <laughs> definitely had many a conversation about a lot of the stuff that's going to come up today, but martinis, yeah. gin. That is crazy, but that might well be the, the case, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, we started talking about martinis, I think, probably just before the lockdown. It was, and you know what this is? Actually, this came up in a recent episode because, and sorry for the detour straight away here, <laughs> but we were chatting with Phil Ward about the fact that he was going to open a bar that had a secret martini menu and the news broke in early, I want to say late 2019 or early 2020. And then I had proposed this idea at the time that it felt like the martini was making a comeback, which was about four years too early now looking at it, right? (laughs) And that never happened. But we were linked. We were going to work on that article together, then the pandemic, and then there we go. Incredible, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, oh, great to meet you. Yeah. So we're going to chat about something that's near and dear to your heart today. Sadly, it's not dilution, which we got a lot from you in your previous episode, The Pink Gin. But it also is dilution because it's stirring. Yeah, it's hard to not, I guess, talk about dilution when when you think about this this, this process, which is, you know, so fundamental. You know, when you think, I think, of the two processes, you know, shaking and stirring, obviously building is 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 so regularly used as well. But I guess... Especially beyond the bar, when people think about cocktails, they think of a martini being stirred or a cocktail being shaken. They're mm-hmm. probably the two most iconic processes. And it's funny, isn't it? Because they're kind of exactly the same in so many ways, but completely opposite at the other end of it. You know? Yeah. I was sort of to, when I was training bartenders, it used to be like describing them almost like brother and sister. They're, they're in the same family. They, you know, they make the drink cold. They combine ingredients. They add the dilution that you really need that's, you know, so important. But one... It's so it's such a delicate process to just tease, you know, mm-hmm. the flavors and aromas out of alcohol, and the other one is really sort of like adding that texture, adding the uh, aeration, you know, sort of rounding and molding a drink into sort of a, a, a unified, you know, bringing those ingredients into one unified uh, drink. So, so similar on many aspects, but so fundamentally different as well. And and so interesting to think as well for a second, like we're we're really aiming here at you know cocktail nerds and mm. people that are in the industry with this show, but. Something occurred to me the other day that, like, for most people, even people that like drinking, they have no context for why one is different than the other. I was listening to a podcast the other day. It was a movie podcast, and someone was talking about how they've recently become a martini drinker, and it was about Casino Royale, so it had the point being there. And someone asked them, oh, how do you take your martini? And they're like, I don't know, classic, uh, shaken, obviously. And I'm like, yeah, for most people, there is no thought process of, why we would stir 
versus shake. You mentioned it a little bit there, and obviously this is going to be a little bit pedestrian for most of the people listening, but it's worth us covering again. Why take that decision in the first place to stir a drink versus shake a cocktail? Yeah, it's... I think over the years as well, I've I've obviously mellowed a little bit because through experience, I think going back a couple of decades, you know, starting off as a trainer and, and trying to educate bartenders and, you know, you sort of, I guess you have core beliefs and, you know, you learn a few different ways and you get exposed to different bartenders and they do different things and you sort of pull together what you think is best from what you learned there and your experience there and working there. So you sort of combine that to create the best education you think you can deliver. And I guess, you know, I, I was sort of, no, you have to, you know, you must. And and then I suppose, especially coming over to the US more and more and more uh, over the years and now obviously moving here and actually going to some of those old school steakhouses, which you would have been in. And I've actually had some really good shaken martinis, which I feel like there's people out there going, you're an idiot. What are you talking about? You know, because I would have been that person a while ago. But I think if you are doing something 200 times a night, and I think this is what one thing we'll get onto about stirring, which I think is really important, which is understanding the nuances, especially these days, which is, I think, really exciting when you talk about the martini being back, the different styles and recipes and different uh, fortified wines, etc., and the different, you know, uh, ratios that people are drinking, then it starts to fall down. But if you're making a martini, which every one of them you're using the same gin or probably vodka, you're just adding a rinse of vermouth. The ice is pretty stable because you've got a big old ice well and you just have that process down, then actually, you know, you, you can... Now, if you walk in there and order something offbeat, then I think it starts yeah. to fall apart because, you know, I think that like you were saying, you're getting back to one of the cores of stirring is that ability to have an open, you know, vessel where you can stick your nose in there, you can taste it. And, you know, it's all about finding that perfect moment. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously it's going to get cold. That's a you know, pretty obvious, but, you know, we're trying to avoid talking about dilution, but, you know, that's the moment you're looking for, isn't it? When all those aromas are lifting off, you know, you taste it, it's soft, all those flavors are just, you know, coming out because that's that's what you're doing when you're stirring. You're teasing those flavors out, mm-hmm. you know, really delicately just to bring them out and, and get that point when that drink is really just at its best. And obviously with an open vessel, you can do that. And with a shaker, it's much more difficult because it's closed and it, it is what it is when you open it. That's a great point. <laughs> I hadn't considered that. So we'll add that to our, our first learning here for the day. Not that we normally do this, but I think it's a good point that you cannot taste shaken drinks. You just have to have that kind of experience. And, and to yeah. your point, yeah, if you're shaking hundreds of martinis a day because you work at Keen Steakhouse, mm-hmm. yeah, you probably have it down. Yeah. I mean, obviously you're going to, you know, I would always advocate for tasting a drink after you've shaken it, but you are after the moment, you know, then what are you going to do? Put the lid back on and shake again? Or, or st- you know, it, it, it's a bit nonsensical. Mm-hmm. But to your point, again, yeah, if you do it 200 times a night, every night, yeah, um, you, probably, you get it down. You, you nail it. But then you walk in there and order a, a different, you know, a gin that's a much different ABV or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot more vermouth in there or something. And then things start to, you know, mm-hmm. go a bit awry. <laughs> <laughs> And again, like we're just going to put it out there. This episode is going to be stirring the technique, but it's also going to be dilution, ice, ingredients. It's going to be everything. So we'll just, you know, get that out of the way. Yeah. Because there is that point, right? I imagine what you're talking... I like to think of it kind of like a bite point if you drive a manual car or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Where you're like, your dilution has come down enough because yep. you need that, but not too far. Yep. And your temperature has come down enough too as well or whatever. Uh, and and you find that, and I think one does come to appreciate if you drink a lot of martinis, just like what a very cold but over diluted martini tastes like. That's easy to get there with stirring too. There's a lot when you work and, and you and you bartend and you work with brands and you 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 know you 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 get nerdy on things. You, you sort of learn and and get into the sort of the weeds with things and get get into it. It's really interesting. And you know, over the years. Your opinions change and are molded by sort of different experiences you have. And and one of the things, you know, back in the day was uh, working with Plymouth. And we were doing, um, I was doing a series of talks on the martini. And it was like I did a tasting history of the martini. And the only way to do a lot of these talks and seminars was to pre-prepare, so do bottled martinis. Which obviously meant adding the dilution, getting in the bottle, getting in the fridge, getting chilled. So, you know, at that point, you really have to consider what the strength of that drink needs to be. Uh, and it becomes obviously blaring. I think when you first start bartending, you're taught to stir, you're taught to shake, and, and everything is about the same length of time, you know. But you know you're not going to stir, 
an old fashioned for the same length of time as a Negroni or a bamboo or something like that. You know, that would be ridiculous, you know, it, certainly in my mind anyway, because bamboos start at a much lower ABV. It doesn't need as much water as, say, a drink that purely is alcohol, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you need to unlock the flavors. You're going to need more water in a very dry martini compared to like a, a 50-50 martini. And then beyond that, working with brands like Plymouth, uh, doing a batching guide with Fords, and then Junipero asked me to come up with a talk to kick off uh, their martini week. And I thought this was a really interesting kind of place to go because I think in a lot of training, we teach people how to stir or shake or whatever, but less about the nuance of how long mm-hmm. that process might go on for, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, we know, obviously, you know, I've got plenty of friends that shout at me for saying, stir a Negroni in there, <laughs> then pour it over ice. They're like, just making the, why are you overcomplicating? I'm like... <laughs> Okay, I I have an opinion, which I'm allowed, and I like my Negroni to be at the perfect point of drinking when it's served, not, you know, having to wait a while and stir it around and (laughs) fiddle with it, you know, and stick a finger in it or whatever. the old Gaz Regan. Exactly. So, you know, obviously your opinion's there, and it's served over rice, so you know it's going to open, it's going to develop, that's fine, but I like it ready from, from that point. But again, that starting alcohol strength is different for a Negroni because you've obviously, you've got the Campari and the Sweet Vermouth, you know, you've got that ratio of one to one to one which again is very different. If you're just having a, an in and out or you know, a really dry dry martini, that alcohol strength is mm-hmm. very different. And then with a brand like Junipero, I thought it was a really interesting way of sort of talking to bartenders because you've got this amazing gin at 50%, 100 proof, uh, or what, I can't remember it's exactly, but it's, it's around that sort of point, under, isn't it? just under, but it's very, yeah. it's very, it's like, it's like 49.3 or, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So with that rationale, we sort of like, because of you know, doing all this batching work with different brands and stuff, I was like, Actually, like, let's measure it. So let's, you know, make some martinis. Let's, uh, every sort of 10 seconds. Now, obviously, it was going to be not because you don't start and stop stirring when you're making a drink, obviously. But let's at least, you know, do this experiment and record the temperature mm-hmm. and record the uh, the volume. So how much water was being added. So every 10 seconds, straining it out, weighing it and looking at how much water huh. was being added at that time and taking the temperature of the drink as well. And you could see this, I mean, it was, it was sort of obvious. It was what I expected to happen, but it was cool to do it and look at it. And the temperature drop and the ABV drop was, you know, almost vertical in those first sort of few measurements because, you know, the liquor is warm, so your gin, your vermouth or whatever, you know, the vermouth's coming out slightly chilled, obviously, but essentially the, the liquids are quite warm, they're hitting the ice, yeah. or they're getting, you're, you're adding the ice, and, and at that point you know, is the point where you're adding the most amount of dilution, you know, in terms of speed. But obviously that dilution is coming from ice, so it's very cold. So you're adding a lot of water at the beginning, but you're also dropping the temperature very quickly as well. So it sort of plummets. But then what was really interesting is it it just sort of sits there. And what I thought was really interesting about that is that if you have a high-strength whiskey, high-strength gin, etc., in the case of Junipero, it was like, you can stir and stir and stir, and actually it drops down in this curve where it sort of hits a point where it's, it's so cold, very little water is actually being added at, any, at that point. And this is sort of one of the things that I first noticed when working with Plymouth and, you know, I'd go to make a, a Navy strength martini. And you sort of think, well, it's stronger, so it's going to be the same sort of ratio of time longer because mm-hmm. it's going from like 40-odd percent to 50-odd percent. So it's probably, you know about 10% longer, I'd start, and you just, and I'd be tasting, I mean, is this still blowing my, yeah. <laughs> my face off? Why? You know, and so it just kept stirring, standing out, why? And, and it was really interesting then to see this, because it plummeted down to just above freezing, and it sat there, because everything now is a similar temperature. Yep. So the rate at which water was being added was incredibly slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why... One of the tips that so we, we came out of this experiment with, with Junipero was to say, look, if you're making a very dry martini with Junipero, add some water, mm-hmm. get the ABV down, and then start stirring, you know? And, and that's why I'd, I'd advise with making an old-fashioned, for example, mm-hmm. as well, you know? Add some of that dilution in first. Otherwise, you're going to be standing there stirring and stirring <laughs> and stirring and stirring <laughs> and tasting it and thinking, why, why is it still so aggressive, you know? Yeah. Because it doesn't matter whether you're a 50, you know, if you're making a 50-50, your alcohol strength is already much lower than a very dry martini, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's obvious that you're going to need less water, mm-hmm. you know? So actually, when it comes to 50-50s, that's when I'd recommend grabbing the liquid, 
you know, out of the fridge or freezer. Colder, so yeah. Because it's colder, it slows the rate of dilution, because it's actually very easy with something like a 50-50 to go straight through that perfect moment mm -hmm. where it's, you know, just the right amount of dilution uh, and we're straight through that. Mm -hmm. Again, think of drinks like the bamboo. You really want really Adonis, cold. Yeah, one we covered exactly. recently. You want to grab those wines out of the fridge, make sure they're really cold. Yeah. And then, you know, it's a quite a brief stir just to bring them together and, you know, drop that temperature down. And you really only need to add the sort of minimum amount of dilution. Mm. So this is the sort of like the scale of what you're doing when you're stirring is actually is huge. It's not just like stir 22 times, you know, mm -hmm. 10 left, right, you know, all those sort of old sort of stories that I remember yeah. from, you know, many years ago. You're like, no, it, it, you do need to pay more attention than that. So that's lesson number two then. And it, it comes with an asterisk or a caveat, but time spent stirring doesn't matter. Um, I would imagine... What matters more and what you were doing with Junipero, like the way you're saying that, by the way, as well, that's my preferred pronunciation. You know, this is a California brand. This is not Junipero. We ain't out there in Spain. I'm sorry. I know it's the Spanish word. Anyway, uh, just thank you for validating me for always pronouncing it wrong, apparently. Um, I would imagine your control test environment there, you were using optimized things, which I want to get into, including vessels, but also the ice, the quality of the ice, the starting temperature, the amount of ice. I would imagine, because I've had wildly over-diluted martinis, that comes from not using enough ice. Mm. So it takes longer to bring the temperature down, at which point more dilution has been added. Does exactly that not... That, that's yeah, right? Exactly Okay. That. Because you're sort of overwhelming the ice, as it were, with, yeah. with, the, with, the, with the booze. Mm -hmm. And it never gets that point where, you know, like you say, you have the vessel. I mean, again, people have different opinions on this. For me, I'd always add all the ingredients and then the ice. Yeah. Especially in a service environment because someone comes back to my change is wrong or this has happened over here or whatever and your your eyes taken away your attention taken away you know it's it's obviously the ice is then sitting there it's already collecting some water so for me I'd always ingredients in then when you're ready to go add the ice and, and get stirring you know mm -hmm. um, just just means your eyes on the ball at all times you know when when you're making the drink yeah so that's two things I want to talk about there then just like when it comes to stirring drinks quantity of ice but let's actually start with vessel first like um do you have a preference when it comes to a glass mixing glass versus metal or otherwise? I know some people do have some preferences on this, or is it more of a style thing, how it looks? I've used them all, to be honest. I, yeah. And I I haven't found that one, because at the end of the day, it's all going to be down about your nose and palate, mm -hmm. if I'm, if, you know, in my, as, as far as I'm concerned, you know. And, you know, people get very particular about holding it and, and not transferring heat and stuff. And I, honestly, with the amount of ice you have in there, and I think it's such a minimal... Um, again, it's one of these things I was probably more pedantic about back in the day. And then you sort of, you know, you make enough of them and then you sort of get into it enough and you realize, no, I've, I mean, I've got a great little metal one at home and I actually keep it filled with filtered water and then it's in the freezer. So I've always got ice and ready to go. So I can then just empty the ice out of the mixing jug, crack it, and then... I'm not wasting nice fancy eyes or anything like that, you know? <laughs> nice, nice little tip there. I think I've got one of those. It was the the, the Birdie, yeah, Eric Lorenz right. yeah, collection. Eric, yeah, Eric, yeah, with a little glint in his eye and gave me a little present many years ago. And I was like, it's great. And he's like, you'll never break this one. And it's true, you know? It's, it's, <laughs> that, it's so funny. And it's a small little, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a stainless steel or whatever, right. metal beaker, right? But it's small, yeah. it's got a little tip on the nose. Yeah. But perfect for one martini yeah brilliant i mean I'm a, I'm a sucker for the beautiful cut glass as well um with the with our with our education platform candra we we've always celebrated the french press or cafetiere um because it's got this amazing uh filter uh you know the fine mesh uh <laughs> yeah. strainer attached in there as well they're brilliant um so love those so especially you know if you're at a friend's house and you know you haven't got your kit and they've mm -hmm. got a french press you know, it's it's really good for, for stirred cocktails. Brings a whole new meaning to the term or cocktail espresso martini, but you know, so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry about that Yeah, do one. make sure it's clean. Yeah. <laughs> so here's one I want to talk about as, a, as an amateur, as an enthusiast over here. Actually, with that set from Eric, uh, his did come with the lovely spiral bar spoon. I think it had something triangular on the top and it was for something specific, but I'm forgetting now. But I have in the years of making cocktails at home have never found a comfort working with the spiral just for my fingers like how do how do you obviously we know what it's for it's for pouring things into drinks right you know the, the spiral but 
Is there any other reason that you would be using that behind the bar beyond the fact that it has that other use? And and how do you get used to just like the, the uncomfortable, I don't know, shape of that thing? You know what I mean? Just like it hurts my fingers. Use a chopstick. They're brilliant. Yeah. Well, ultimately, that's what I do. I use something like that, but I'm, I, I feel like a fraud. <laughs> well, it comes back to, again, I think the ease is from your earlier comment about a lot of ice. Um, use a lot of ice, it packs in there, and then because what you want, you're not churning, you know, and, uh, you know, we're talking to obviously experienced bartenders here, and uh, they'll understand that, but a lot of when you're watching people baking a martini or a Manhattan or a Sturdcotter for the first time, and it's sort of like the, the churning gruel or something, you know, the ice is all sort of bouncing around, you're like... Please stop. You mm-hmm. know, so you've got to have that light grip and just allow the spoon to sort of rotate in the fingers and you just, you know, you're spinning that ice really as a single block. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, do you know, it's, it's just, there's just a callus there for, which comes from writing mm-hmm. and from stirring. <laughs> and it's just there on the finger and it does, yeah, it just takes a minute. But yeah. I have to say chopsticks are brilliant because they haven't got a, you know, you've got this flat edge with a, with a bar spoon, mm-hmm. which can, you know, if you haven't, you know, if you're new to it, then the, there is a bit of a technique to get that spoon, you know, going around the outside of the, uh, the Should glass. Should the spoon be facing in or out? I mean. In. I get, I'm just asking here. I would say in, but I reckon yeah. you could probably, you <laughs> wouldn't make any difference. And actually quite a lot of bartenders would um, use, if you have a bar spoon without the sort of muddler end, uh, would sometimes prefer to turn the spoon upside down and actually yeah. stir with with that end of it as well, you know. So nice, you know. It's it's really it's just repetition, repetition. You mm-hmm. know, once you've done it a few hundred and a few thousand times, you know, it just gets easier and easier and easier. But mm-hmm. light grip and yeah, don't churn. Just let that ice spin. If I see a bartender stirring two drinks at once with two hands, mm-hmm. a first of all, I'm impressed. B, I'm slightly worried. Can we have as much control there? See, Obviously, you need it in the service environment, busy service, mm. you know, you're in the weeds. See, I, I, would have, I would have probably, it was interesting looking at this, understanding that because the majority of the dilution you're adding is in the, such an early point of the process, that actually, as long as you're being attentive, um, you get to this, uh, this stage where it's then very slow. What, what you, how the drink is evolving and changing in the glass becomes a very slow process, actually. So it goes, you know, from very quick, the, the ice is melting because the your ingredients are quite warm. Uh, you start that stirring process. The ice melts, adding ice-cold water. The liquid becomes very cold, and it gets down to that point where it's a similar temperature to the ice. And then, it, because it's so slow now, yeah, you you have got the ability to really kind of go between those two and make sure they both get to that sort of perfect point. Obviously, you know, the more things you're doing at once, there is more danger. But, you know, that's also why you're professional, isn't it? So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's like chefs doing a million things exactly. at once, chopping things, looking yeah. in the wrong direction, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it just comes down to practice, I guess. Exactly, but also knowing that the drink is, to a degree, going to evolve quite slowly. Mm-hmm. So actually, you know, you have got that control to like, okay, this is great now, and right, no, this needs a couple more stirs, and right, mm-hmm. you know. It also looks great, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know, there's nothing better than seeing that. You know, that's a, that's the you get the tips right there. You know, <laughs> yeah, for sure, the money maker. Um, all right, so a little bit more on ice just before we move on from this part. Uh, so basically, as much as you can possibly fit, and is it easier? Therefore, you said your preference is to add ingredients first and then ice, which mm-hmm. you explained why. Um, is it easier just to gauge that by adding ice second to? Um, is it easier to, in what sense? Or there's like, less room need? for fucking up in, in the <laughs> case of, like, again, if I use that small one that I have at home, the old yeah. birdie, um, if I fill the ice first, sometimes I'll jigger into it and the ice is creeping over the top. Suddenly I've lost half my gin onto the table because it's splashing out. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a re- actually, yeah, I hadn't, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that takes me way back. So about 20 odd years, I remember <laughs> that. I do, yeah. Because it was one of those things Well, you know, no, I mean, I was a professional, but it was early Not days me. and stuff. But, uh, you know, I do remember, you know, stretch pour up high and, it, and just hitting an ice cube and just watching... You know, the booze fly in and then straight out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think there's got to be a better way. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is great also just for dispelling my own myths that I have here and weird idiosyncrasies. So another thing I like to do, and maybe I'm just going about this all wrong, but I'll go like one larger block of ice at the bottom uh-huh. and then normal cube ice on top of that when okay. I'm making my martini because I maybe have this weird notion that it won't, there's no danger of over-diluting because that large cube will 
dilute slower, mm-hmm. less surface area. So I'm just using that as like my anchor. But maybe this is just all weird Probably in my bit, head. Yeah, a bit in your head. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, do you know what? I don't, this, I don't, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. as long as you get to the right place. And and this is what I've probably softened on over the years is like, you know, I've had really good thrown martinis. I've had good shaken martinis. I would generally, as a rule, say stir it because I think you've got more control and, you know, for the reasons we talked about earlier. Um, but at the end of the day, what works for you works, you know, and, and I think there's many different ways and we can all have a little quirks and all, all suggestions and some of them matter, some of them don't, some of them make you feel more confident, you know, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes that's as important because you've just got it down now. You, however many times you've done that, you now know where you're at. Mm-hmm. I mean, over the years, I would say, and this sort of, I guess, creeps back into the dilution thing, but I would say there's more danger. I've, I've had more under diluted drinks than ever over. It's very, I can't think of very many times I've learned, oh, that's a shame. Yes, I have, but it's, it's Go to rare. an airport bar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I mean, and that's sometimes, you know, the control with the ice there as well sometimes. But actually, when you talk about using a lot of ice, that becomes so much more important, you know, if you don't have great ice, you know, because actually if you do pack even with the worst possible, you know, you're at a friend's house, you do want to make a martini, and they've only got that awful hollow stuff, you yep. know. You are in danger there, but if you really pack it full, you know, again, because you've then actually got a huge amount of surface area uh, for the uh, for the liquid to be in contact with, so it will melt very quickly, but, you know, you will also get it very cold very quickly as well. So as long as you're, again, but this is the point I think we were going to earlier, there is no one, oh, you stir for this many times. Because your ice, the quality, you know, towards the end of the night, if you're in service and you, you, the ice well is a little bit on the empty side and the ice is a little bit warmer, it's a little bit wetter, you know, these every one of these things makes a difference, you know, but it always means that if you have that understanding, you'll always manage to guide the drink to where it needs to be, you mm-hmm. know. We spoke about, therefore, you know, you can, there can be such a thing as a good shaken martini. I feel like this. Tell me why. No, I no, I agree. I I, I I know. I just wait for people like, oh, yeah, I heard you say that. <laughs> Tell me why there can't be, or maybe there can, why there can't be a good stirred daiquiri then. Oh, I mean, I know people, some people say there can be, and yeah. it, it is interesting. Do you know what? Again, it's it's more of a, I, when you say stirred daiquiri, I just can't imagine it being any good. But I bet it is. I bet it can be. Theoretically, I know we were always we have these rule of thumb, right? Yeah. So anything fresh or any juice, right? You know, mm-hmm. you need to shake it for emulsification. I yeah. get that. I would argue that with the right amount of ice in a glass and stirring fast enough, you can get that emulsification and maybe have more control here. We're not shaking it. Um, I've never tried. No, I haven't. And and you know, when you think of there are there are a number of citrus drinks that are that aren't shaken that are built so it doesn't necessarily need that aggressive aeration and and you know shaking i and and that's an interesting you know i quite like these thoughts because i think you bartend and you make drinks for so many years that you have these sort of they're, they're beaten into you over years mm-hmm. so that you can't think of like a daiquiri being shaken but i bet i could go and sit there and mess around or you know someone that i know that people have done them and, and say they're good i probably i'm sure i could be proved wrong you know mm-hmm. and, that, and that's what i've learned more over the years is that if you're hard and fast on what you think is right someone will probably show you wrong mm-hmm. at some point you yeah. know there are fundamentals that i do believe you know you you can't sort of avoid but but a lot of the time you know actually there is normally more than one way and, and i think it's really important with with people, if, if you know, if you're educating bartenders, you're bringing them up through. You know, when I've trained teams, you do say, "Look, I want it done this way," because we, as a team, uh, visually for the sort of the drinks, we all want to have that. You know, every guest sees it being done the same way. There is that sort of mm-hmm. cohesiveness as a team that we're all doing it together. But I'd also be the first to say, I also respect and get if you think actually i prefer it done this way and that way and to be honest you know i think it can be done well there and it can be done well there and that but for our team we're going to do it this way and i'll explain why Mm -hmm. i personally think we should be doing it this way and that way um but i would never be the one to sort of be completely dictatorial on like because it's the only way to do it and you're wrong if you think it's any (laughs) other way because most of the time you know you can be 
you know, someone will show you that actually it, it can be done well in a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, there are core things that can't change, you know, like we've talked about in terms of temperature, in terms of dilution, you know, the quality, the ingredients, how you handle those things. There's sort of, there are pillars that can never change, but a lot of, you know, there's often more than one way to get to that end result. I, I can't remember who said it, but at this point again, sorry to stick on it, just about the shaken martini though, that I... Someone once said to me when we were doing one of these recordings, like, well, why is a shaken martini bad? When was the last time you had a shaken martini or tried to make one at home? And I think it speaks to these things like part of learning and part of improving is doing the things that you're told you're not supposed to do and analyzing, all right, why is it then? And actually, in some cases, you can challenge things and be like, hey, maybe this might actually be a good way to do things. Mm -hmm. We'll find out later. After this, we're going to a bar. You're getting a stirred daiquiri. I'm getting a shaken martini. But we're going to go in there. And we're going to say we are seasoned martini and daiquiri drinkers. So we expect the quality. <laughs> the bartender is just going to look at a couple of ourselves. But yeah, We're going to be thrown out. <laughs> I'm sure we can find somewhere that will take the challenge seriously. Uh, yes. But exactly what you're saying, I, I think, is... It is so true. And, you know, I quite like that. Well, when was the last time you had a shaken martini? You know, yeah. and sort of throwing it back because it is, you know, and and I think, as I said, there's a, per you, you get to a point of sort of, um, you know, as you go through your career and you're given responsibility to educate other people, I think it's really important to be open with people and not just say there's, everyone else is an idiot if they think, if you've ever been told that. And also, as you were saying, the why as well as the how, it's like, we do it this way but because this way, mm -hmm. you know, and in a perfect world, I think you should add on to that education. Yes, there is this way, this way, and this way also that can get to that end thing. Mm -hmm. But for us as a team, we're going to do it this mm -hmm. way, you know. Working in hospitality, I'm sure this was probably the case in bars, but one thing that always came up in kitchens was like, you'd have a new team member join and every so often you get these team members that all they ever wanted to talk about is how they did it at their old place. Mm-hmm. This is how we did it here. And you're like, yeah. guess what, buddy? We ain't there anymore. We're here. This is how we do it here. Yeah. There's those guys. I don't know. I find it funny that you meet these characters in hospitality. It's one of the things I love about this industry that you stick around for long enough and you'll see the same person come through the doors over and over again. Different people, but the same character, mm -hmm. right? And there's the, yeah. here's how I used to do that. Here's how we used to do it. There's always that guy. Yeah, I completely agree. And then I think that then speaks to successful management, how you get the best out of that person. Because, again, I don't think it's enough to say because. Yeah. <laughs> because you work here now, mate. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> we do it this way and that's it. I think you do have to go into the the why. You have to respect that, okay, yeah, that's a, to be honest, no Valid problem question. with that. Great, great way of doing it. Uh, I've worked in places before. We've done it that way. I like it. But here, for mm -hmm. this reason, blah, blah, blah. You know, we, we like to do it this way. If you could get on board, that would be yeah. great, you know. But to try and just be like, no, you're wrong because we only do it one way. And I've seen that happen a lot, especially especially sort of more, you know, junior bartenders. Or, or not necessarily junior bartenders, but bartenders, they first move up into, say, uh, a managerial sort of style of role where they're, where they're starting to run a team and they do have to sort of bring people on board. And it, you do, you know, you have to win them over in that sense. You can't just tell them because, you know, I mean, yeah. I guess at some point you're like, look, this is how we do it here. But, you know, I think it's much better. You always get a better response out of anyone if you kind of like explain why. Mm -hmm. And also if you acknowledge that there are often many different ways of doing things rather than just being closed to like, no, this is the only yeah, way I've ever done it the and there's we... only one. Like, yeah. You know, because then I think you're being honest with that person be like, yeah, cool, okay, great, and not saying you're wrong there. Because no one likes to hear, you know, well, you're an idiot and that last place you were was wrong, you know, but it's like, this is why we do it and we do it this way and, and sort of take them through and get them on board and then, you know, hopefully then they feel very empowered uh, and they, they become a great part of the team. Nice. What I love about this this topic today is that it is very much a distillation of everything that this show is supposed to be about, right? You said up top, you can't just turn around to someone and say, stir for 15 seconds. But like, if you had a recipe, it's kind of like cooking onions or something or whatever. It's like saute for five minutes until brown. It's like, no. Uh, and stir for 15 seconds until cold. Well, it depends. Yeah. So I love that this is what this show is all about. Like, you can't learn most things from a recipe. You have to go deeper. 
Um, we've covered a lot of everything I wanted to about stirring, but I just wanted to see whether there's any, I don't know, anything else you wanted to add on this topic or any other weird and wonderful work you've done there with brands like Junipero. Um, <laughs> if, well, I tell you what, the, we, we did some, we produced some actual graphs. Mm-hmm. And so if anyone does want to nerd out a little bit, there is, uh, I'm going to obviously have a little plug here on Kandra, kandradrinks.com. Mm-hmm. We, uh, there is a how to make the perfect martini article that we put together. And on there, I've included the graphs to show the different points of temperature and stuff. And look, you know, we didn't do 10,000 martinis, you know, but we did, uh, I think I, uh, it's it's an average of, I can't remember how many we did of each, but we did a 50, we did multiple 50-50s, multiple uh, ratio of a 10 to 1 and a 2 to 1. Mm-hmm. So kind of like, you know, some very dry sort of middle of the road and a 50-50. Mm-hmm. And we, like I said, we looked at, how the ABVs changed, or where the starting points were to... And again, you know, you can argue with me about where you think the perfect ABV for a martini is, you know, and that's fine, you know, but uh, there's no... The science that we sort of showed there... Science is a good word, isn't it? I showed science. <laughs> um, that, you know, how... When we stir, what's going on? I think for anyone... And, and, you know, especially when you're trying to teach bartenders and show them again the why not just the you know it's, it's there as a, as a as a tool if anyone wants to sort of go on there and show like you know you can see the drop in temperature the, the abv and sort of how they just all link together um and i think that really helps visually to sort of get people thinking about what drink are you making you know are you make and and i don't think 15 10 15 years ago this wasn't really something that was particularly on my mind because people weren't drinking 50 50s they weren't drinking, you know, sherry and this and that, you know, different. And it's great. We are here. But it does mean we now have to pay much more attention um, to those drinks that, that are being ordered these days. You know, all these riffs on Manhattans and different old fashions. And it's brilliant. But as bartenders, it means we do have to really, we can't just, there can't just be this one thing. I feel like sometimes stirring is like, and stir, you know, in a process and a recipe is like, and stir, you know. And that's fine, but that means a huge amount of different things. <laughs> and it basically means paying attention. And for me, it doesn't matter what the technique is, actually. It's still, uh, the fundamental comes down to your nose and your palate. And that's the only thing you should ever trust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it will always guide you right. You know, and, and I think that's really important. It's, it's you know, something when, whether it's when we're talking to consumers about how to make drinks at home or, or professionals, it just doesn't ever change, you know. I remember years ago, you know, <laughs> bartender I tasted one of his drinks and I was like I think it was a margarita and I was like it's, I think it's not not you know and he's like well I was like did you taste it and he said yeah I was like what did you think he said I thought it was terrible <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was just supposed to be that way I'm like okay you're right this is your palate this is like trust don't you know a recipe will guide you so far and I think you mentioned this earlier you know you have to bring Mm-hmm. Some intelligence and and that use of that nose and palate to it. You can't just be like it said. It was this, this, and this, um, because then there's always the danger, you know. Mm-hmm. So tasting those drinks, using your nose, using your palate, and I think it doesn't matter then when you've made you're stirring a drink down for the very first time or the thousandth time, you will find that you know that perfect moment when mm-hmm. that drink is just spot on. You know, I I think I have something going on here uh, soon that really speaks to what you're talking about there. Um, we do an annual roundup of vodka and, you know, taste through hundreds of bottles and people must be like, you know, uh, you know, like that's terrible or not fun. And I've grown to really appreciate vodka because of doing those. Yeah. But the one thing I love about doing that versus basically any other category of spirit is it shows you the difference between the taste of alcohol and the burn of alcohol, right? Like burn, you're always going to get depending on heat, and it's going to rise with heat. But you can have a wonderful 65% ABV whiskey, for example, that doesn't taste at all of booze, like of booze, of ethanol, right, of that alcoholic component. And it's understanding the difference of those two things and being like one is not necessarily a bad thing and one is absolutely a bad thing. And I don't know, I was thinking about that when you are speaking about that there too, right? Like, Yeah, and I think, it's, I remember, especially with younger bartenders, that sort of education of... I don't like it and sort of not in a mean way but going like you don't have an opinion here because that customer over there loves them I don't care if you don't like margaritas you've got to learn to just taste and smell for the sort of the just the pure you know almost science of like is this drink balanced is it well made are you sending it out mm-hmm. 
I don't care whether you like it or not. That's for after hours when you go and you choose because you prefer to drink mezcal or you prefer gin or whiskey or whatever. That's that's your time mm-hmm. at work. And it takes a while, I think. It, it does take a minute to be able to set aside preferences. Because, you know, I think we all have things and like, I'm not a massive fan of this or I don't like this because it's too peaty or, or whatever it might be. And you do have to just turn your palate and your nose into a tool that's just there to find that perfect point when that, you know, in terms of stirred drinks, you know, when that drink is at that perfect point ready to serve. Doesn't matter whether it's not the way you would drink it. Doesn't matter if they've added some sort of ingredient into the Manhattan that you think, why? You know, your job is to get that drink just, you know, perfectly to that point where you're going to serve it. And you use your nose, you use your palate as a tool, and that's it. Personal preference, then, you know, Mm. when you leave. (laughs) (laughs) Sebastian Hamilton Marge, never not advocating for proper levels of dilution. (laughs) Not a day goes by. Oh, God. I love it. (laughs) Well, I think that's that's fascinating. I need to build up a callus on my finger here, and I need to start manning up. And I don't know, not manning. You know what I mean? You know, stir using a proper bar spoon. Practice. (laughs) All right. Shall we do it? Shall we hit you up with questions six through ten? Because you've done one through five, and if people want to listen to those, they can head over to the Pink Gin episode. One of my favorites from back in the day. That's a good one here. Oh, the, the podcast or the drink? The podcast. Oh, oh. <laughs> the drink's good too. <laughs> I was talking about the drink. I thought, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with this second set of questions. How are you feeling? You feeling good for them? I'm feeling pretty good. Yeah. Okay. We're possibly also gonna. I'm just gonna tease this one for the listeners. We might need to be bringing up a third set of questions because might be having a uh, a three peak guest some point soon coming back. So. I uh, need to start working on those. But for you today, we have six through ten, starting with number six. Which spirits category are you currently most excited about? Uh, a new one on me altogether. Uh, I'm working with uh, an amazing Bacanora brand called Kalinga. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, done. obviously spent so many years in gin and it's been great. Um, much I love those years. It's been wonderful coming back out and in, into a broader, still working with gins, obviously, but into a broader sort of booze world again. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting category. Um, Tell us about Bacanora for those who might not be familiar. So it's a it's an agave spirit from Sonora in Mexico. But I think one of the interesting, the sort of good and the bad of it, it, it went through a long period of prohibition. So locally, a bit like any area where there's been prohibition, to a generation, it's all a bit sort of moonshine and, and not very good, you know. Um, because obviously being illegal, that drives these things underground, you know, and that tends to obviously wreck the quality. Um, yeah, but, so they should try early American craft whiskey. That's all I'll say. That stuff's legal and definitely wasn't good. But anyway, sorry, carry on. Exactly. <laughs> but it's uh, it's really interesting. And we're, we're working with a brand that uh, they, they control the liquid from the seed all the way through to, to the bottling. And, uh, you know, it's it's been one. I've been so lucky in my career to work with some real kind of crazy heritage brands, you know, Plymouth and, and Beefeater and the likes that, that just got these amazing stories and this history and heritage. And then it's really interesting kind of dealing with the exact opposite where you've got a brand that's that's completely new um, and he just immersed himself, uh, the, the master distiller, the maestro, Rodrigo, just, you know, it's family owned and he just spent 15 years of going like, right, first thing was like, I think we've got this land, I'm going to start growing agave and then, you know, to then take it all the way through to like going to learn from these guys here, going to the tequila, going to Oaxaca, going to sort of learn from all the best um, but not being then restricted by we have to do it this way because my great 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 grandfather did it this way and there's you know and that's which is a lovely thing but it's also really interesting when you're in that position where you can just be like I think this is good and and a bit like what we were talking about with bartending techniques to be you get to pick and choose what you think was the best I right. think this and and you know he's built these uh, these liquids because of like trial and error and you know and and it's it's lovely to hear him talk about you know the sort of humility of being like oh some of those early bottles <laughs> <laughs> not good and then you know to start to produce some and friends be like can we get some and and okay you know and and just to sort of have someone that's really sort of humble and has learned from these amazing other people and then brought all that knowledge together to produce their own liquid is uh, it's really interesting and it's it's a it's a real pleasure to work with mm-hmm. Elevator pitch, if we were to say it's like tequila or mezcal, but what is the but here? Yeah, really, i tell you what's really interesting. Um, 
very sort of minerally, very, uh, I actually, with the uh, Silvestre, I use almost like gin because it's kind of got this minerality because it's got mountains and then ocean and desert. So it's got real complexity, beautiful with like, I do a dry martini with a slither of cucumber, um, which works really well. Um, then he's, uh, he's got a Blanco, which then has a hint of smoke. Um, there is that little bit of smoke, but far milder than your mezcal smoke. So if smoke is something you quite enjoy, but you sometimes are scared about how much, that one has just got that kind of hint. And then he also does two, uh, two aged ones, a Reposado and then uh, an Añejo, which he's aging for years, really, a very limited edition, and just until it's already sort of five more years. Wow. But the Reposado itself is, I think, three, four plus years. Nice. Again, when it's ready, yeah. you know, which is kind of cool. Amazing. Name of that brand again? Kalinga. Kalinga. Check it out, folks. Please do. Uh, next question here for you. What was the last drink or cocktail you had that truly wowed you? Uh, we were just talking about this. El Nico, uh, newly opened in, in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg. I, I'm a sucker for rhubarb, and I had a rhubarb margarita there, and it was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, color, uh, just yeah, everything about it, and just that beautiful, bright, citrusy, fruity flavor that you get from uh, from rhubarb. Mm-hmm. Really nicely balanced. Um, yeah, great drink. They have a great... I was there recently, had a pickled ramp martini, which, uh, you know, ramp season doth not come around that, or it doesn't last long. Yes, well, same with rhubarb, obviously, as yeah. well. So it's sort of like, it's a bit bittersweet, because you're like, oh... Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be here. Maybe next time I'm back in town, it won't be on the menu anymore. Yeah. And that's uh, that's Leo Robichek and team yeah. over there, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, killing it. So, and do you know what? Fair play to him. You know, it's it's tough, isn't it, when you have a name? That, that, that you know, you go in there expecting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, drinks were fantastic. So, yeah, congrats to Leo and the team. Nice, nice rooftop view up there over yeah, Williamsburg and beyond. So, very fun. Fun little fun space. Probably my favorite way to view the BQE, which is a, is a sight to behold. No, it goes out both ways. It's nice. Yeah, um, very good. All right. What's one book you think every alcohol or cocktail enthusiast should own a copy of? Okay, we I'm going to plug Do it. being completely selfish. Uh, we have a book coming out this, this autumn, How to Make Better Cocktails. And um, it's all about... It's funny, I reckon I'd have written this book, or I say I, we as a team would have written this book pretty much for the trade 10 years ago. And it's just <laughs> so exciting how the cocktail world has evolved that now, you know, you're we're able, you know, the publisher kept back coming back saying, oh, could, can we write more on this? And actually, can you guys go into a bit more depth on that and, and, and whatever? So it was really exciting. I, I felt like they were going to, can you dumb this down? And actually they were like, no, give us more. Uh, and so we, we sort of, yeah, had a great time. Uh, we've done all the sort of the design and in terms of, sort of like graphic design, uh, illustration, photography, you know, there's a bunch of sort of unique recipes, there's a bunch of classics. Um, but yeah, it's, it's designed for the home bartender, but I would, I would definitely say obviously this is a trade. If you have younger bartenders, we definitely built it there for like, here's a good, here's your first cocktail book, you know, with a lot of the core key elements that you need. Plus, you know, we've delved into a little bit of infusion and using teas and making nice. sherbets and syrups. And again, this is what I was like. They're gonna say tone it down, and it was really great. With the publisher being like, "No, that's this is interesting. Like, give us more here." <laughs> so, you know, a few stories in there, and, and you know, a bunch of classics, obviously, and then, and then a few sort of takes and mm-hmm. a few new drinks from us as well. How to make better drinks coming out when hitting shelves? Hitting shelves. Uh, that'll be in, in the US, October, Just middle in time of October for the holiday season. That second, that second wave of books of the year, right? That's exactly. That yeah, yeah. And you, you've got previous here. You're, you're a published author. You've written about the Martini before. I've written with, with our friend yeah. Aaron Goldfarb. That's right. Of the yeah, show. with Plymouth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah, that was uh, that was good. Yeah, enjoyed. I do, I do love the process. So uh, yeah, as a team, it was great to uh, come together to put a book together. It was, it was something we've been sort of excited about doing for a while. So mm-hmm. great to get the opportunity. Perfect. You can't miss it. It's bright yellow and black. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Look forward to seeing that one come come October. Um, in the meantime, penultimate question: If you could appear in one movie scene where alcohol plays a prominent role, and you're in an LA native, uh, LA resident right now, so you know, I imagine you're thinking about movies all the time. Which one would it be, and who would you want to play? Uh, I mean, it's so difficult to not sound like such a pretentious, you know, when you're thinking about who you would play <laughs> you in a scene. Play. Like, just you can Same. imagine the eye rolls, you know. But <laughs> weirdly, it's not particularly cocktaily. But this was a tough one. But for me, there's a film with uh, Clooney and J-Lo called Out of Sight. Okay. 
You never seen it? I've I've seen it. I'm I'm trying to. It's been a while. I'm trying to think of the where we might be going here. So there's a scene. They're in the rooftop having a whiskey together, and obviously she's chase. She's the cop chasing him, and they're sort of like you know, and it's just a great scene. And mm-hmm. they're just sat there, and I think they're just drinking whiskey in these really beautiful, you know, those super heavy based old fashioned, yeah, like double whiskey old fashioned old glasses. I think the snow's coming down. It's just, it's probably more for the the style of the shot you know mm-hmm. how they've set the shot up it's just beautiful the snow's coming down it's it's at night and it's just really beautifully shot and it just you know sometimes you see for me it was i guess the, i landed on that one because i'm just like oh i'd like to sit there with a nice yeah. glass of like whether it be a glass of whiskey or a martini or something it's just you sort of look at that and you're like that's that's why i like bars mm-hmm. i want to sit there <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you know you're going to be george clooney but that sounds yeah. ridiculous but i'd, I'd happily yeah. be in the background just you know, minding my own business. Just, just, yeah, fly in the wall. <laughs> yeah, just sipping on Third wheel. Know, something delicious. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, highly recommend. Great scene. Nice. I think it's one of those scenes where you just like, oh, I, I want to, I want to go and have a little sip of something in a yeah. bar right now. Nice. All right then. Last question for you here today: Which modern classic cocktail do you think is deserving of more recognition than it gets? Oh, I think I failed on this one, um, if I'm honest, because I, I just couldn't, I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't settle on one. So I went a little bit further back to a drink that not a lot of people, I'm I'm sure the listeners here, most of them all have have come across it, but doesn't seem to be that well known, and that's a casino. Okay. Which I love, um, because I don't love Violette, but I do love Maraschino, the orange bitters, the gin, the citrus. Um, So it's a great, if you love those sort of characters, but you're Mm -hmm. not a big fan of the floral notes, um, essentially, uh, it's an aviation without violette and with a little dash of orange bitters. Nice. So it's it's it, and weirdly enough, another reason I thought it was quite interesting as a choice was because there's a originally I think in the early 19, oh, 12, 1919, I think it was the first recipe was with citrus and it was stirred. <laughs> See, they've been full circle, and that's full the most circle. I tell you what, this industry, you know, whenever you think you're being clever. Yeah. You normally open a book from 100 years ago. Someone's already done it and said it. <laughs> it happens all the time, doesn't it? I'm so original. Yeah. No, you're not. <laughs> Nothing's new. Uh, that's amazing. Well, you know, funny enough, just, just a quick side note here. We're 90 episodes in at this point, maybe more, and wow. uh, still no one's chosen to do the aviation, which, you know, if we launched this show 15 years ago... I think bartenders would have been clamoring to make that drink, right? It had that yeah. resurgence when Creme de Villac came back and mm-hmm. they wanted to bring it back, but yeah, no 100%. one. Really interesting. Or we've done it and I've forgotten and people are like, you're an idiot. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure we haven't covered that yet. Please don't put in the comments below. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, Seb, we need to go and get ourselves some uh, stirred daiquiris over here. Sounds good. Uh, thanks so much for joining us in the studio. Always a pleasure. Yeah, great to see you. Great to meet you, apparently. <laughs> Cheers. All the best. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.